It's different for black boys, harder for black girls. Start your own business venture, thrive in a black world. Where you and your homies don't gotta worry about getting fired and facing discrimination. We are creators, we don't go begging for placement where we are not wanted. And I'ma keep it a hundred, youngin'. We used to be hunted, they had us sitting in zoos. So what you see in the news is really nothing that's new. They really targeting you. You hear me talking to you? Racing Rose is brought to you by your hosts, Deja Staten and Christina Alford. Hello. This podcast was created as a way to address the many racial issues that this country, and specifically BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, and people of color, living in this country, have been carrying, confronting, living through, basically from the beginning of our history. Which we would like to mark our history is from before uh, the United States was was founded with, you know, the indigenous inhabitants who were here long before and were genocided by the predecessors to the U.S. government. So we will be covering history, current events, systemic issues that are affecting all of us. Today. Today. (laughs) So why Rosé, Pristina? Rosé, because, well, for all of you who know us, we always have a glass or a bottle or ten. <laughs> okay, that's a lot. That's a lot. But not a lie. But not no. Um, close in hand. Um, and honestly, it's, you know, we'll be covering a lot of heavy issues. These conversations are not easy at all. And it's just a little bit more digestible with a glass of rosé in hand. That it is. So Welcome. All right. So hello, everyone. Welcome back to Race and Rosé. This is episode four, Four, right? Episode four of Black History Month, part three. Okay. This is like the last day of Black History Month. So we are... Second to last, yeah. This is the grand finale. It's the grand finale, except like we're a podcast about race. So Black History Month is every month. It's every day. Literally. Like we're doing this all the time. Yes. But I mean, if we did some some historical deep diving, we would not have otherwise done um, per se because of the history of the history behind Black History Month, which y'all can catch from last week's episode, um, mm-hmm. Black History Month Part Two. Uh, for those of you who haven't listened yet, listen to Black History Months Part One and Two. Prior to this, you'll get some of uh, Pristina's wisdom and guidance related to PR marketing, um, the culture storytelling for brands like dumb shit not to do if you're a brand yes <laughs> right some gems yeah some gems um and some hot takes and then last week we shifted kind of more into my arena of like the historical shit you never wanted to know but i'm going to tell you about all day every day anyways um mm-hmm. so that and today we're going to do a little, little mixed bag we're going to do a little a little both right yes yeah just to kind of like just to round it out pull it all together which honestly this worked out perfectly like we were late to the party because we're always late to everything with respect to getting this podcast started but like we're we're happy about it because we got to launch during black history month yes and this is a great foundation to launch the podcast on because of all of the fucked up and amazing uh black history that we get to talk about during black history month that is a good segue into Mm -hmm. you know all things race and rosé right yes so Without further ado, go ahead, Christina. What today <laughs> we are drinking, and mind you, we had to Google like the lettering on this bottle because we didn't even really know. I can't even read it's this. It's like one of those fancy fonts that's so fancy that like it means nothing. Like, what like, are you? What are these words? What, what are is letters? the first letter? <laughs> it, it took multiple tries. We couldn't figure out if it was an L or an E or an F or a, or a C. Yeah, we had no idea. So, so basically, this is one of the wines that we bought at. Wine, wine country. country, the wine yeah. country, Field Long Beach. Last week. Yes. So it is called 
La Estebelle. I think that was pretty good. Right? Yeah. Yes. And it's French. It's French. It's from France. And it's it's a rosé, but like I think it looks and drinks more like an orange wine, to be honest, which we decided is is a rosé. Correct. That's what we decided. Yes. Um, It's non-sparkling. But it's great. It's quite lovely. I think it's a natural wine also. There was definitely like some sediment at the bottom. Um, and we're actually on a second bottle of wine because it's Saturday and we can do that. Yes. Um, so the second bottle of wine, this looks like it's Greek, but apparently it's Spanish. There's like X's in here. I'm going to try this. I think it's Ancholia. Um, Ooh, I'm idea. not sure, but that's what we're going with. Um, Christina, you, I haven't tried this yet. So what does this taste like to you? Um, it looks fresh. It's light. It looks nice and light and fresh. This looks like a French-style rosé. It's a bit sparkling. Ooh. There's a little sparkle oh, to it. We've got a little pop-pop. Yeah, there's a little pop-pop-pop-pop-pop-pop-pop-pop-pop pop, 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 to, to send <laughs> BHML right. Pop-pop. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, so we'll I'll comment on this as I get into it a little bit further. Very light um, and sparkly. We're taking notes, don't worry, on all of these wines, and we will be releasing something at some point, like in hopefully written form, like on the website or on the, the gram. The about. Race and Rosé wine list. Oh, coming soon. You just made a whole thing up and I'm here for it. Yes. Sponsor us, sponsor us, sponsor us. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So we left off last week with like a super historical deep dive. So we're going to finish that off for you. We went through the history, as I said, behind the history of Black History Month. Um, and we touched on, you know, uh, Carter G. Woodson and him founding the organization that uh, led to Black or Negro History Week, we should say, and then Black History Month eventually. Um, and we walked through um, Abraham Lincoln being the great emancipator of lies and uh, Frederick Douglass and his background. So now we're going to tell you a little bit about the man behind the plan. The actual man of the hour. Yeah, Carter G. Woodson. Um, So he... As we said, he founded the ASNLH, which is the organization that came up with Negro History Week. Um, They were founded in 1915. The first Negro History Week was not for another 10 or 11 years until 1926. But this was really founded out of this perceived need for black people telling black history, right? Like there was an oversight. We talked about we dragged the living fuck out of, I should say, Birth of a Nation and the KKK last week and talked about how um, this was probably somewhat of a response to that um, and to this like mistelling of blackness and black history that you can see in Birth of a Nation. Um, If you want like a really quick summary, white people, blackface, racism, KKK, (laughs) we're done. (laughs) That's basically it. So if you don't want to watch three hours of that, that's what it is. That's what it is. Yeah. And like some random cats here and there interspersed throughout. (laughs) It's fucking strange Um, and really racist. So um, anyways, Carter G. Woodson, ASNLH, um, they single-handedly, or he, I should say, single-handedly launched the Journal of Negro History, um, which focused on highlighting the achievements of black Americans, and that was actually before the first Negro History Week came out. So he was doing this work prior to, you know, launching a week about it, which makes sense, right? Like, researching the history, presenting the history, and then there's a whole week about it. Um, So a little bit of Carter G. Woodson's background. His early life, he was from New Canton, Virginia. He was from a large family of sharecroppers and miners and sharecroppers were super super common in the south following slavery following the civil war and sharecroppers essentially rented land rented um, the instruments of farming so all the tools uh, from a white plantation owning family sounds like slavery Um, and oftentimes they would be stuck in this repetitive cyclical relationship with the owner of the land with the owner of the equipment because they just could not uh, produce enough produce to pay back the equipment so that's the a little bit of a brief history behind sharecropping Carter G. 
Woodson had a really interesting background in that he actually worked outside of the United States, which for a black person in the early 20th century is wild. And where did he work, Christina? Do you know? I have no idea. The Philippines. Oh, that's right. He was a superintendent. That's yeah. right. Connection to your people. My um, peeps. To your peeps. So, well, part of your peeps. Um, yes. He worked as an education superintendent for mm-hmm. the U.S. government um, for some time prior to continuing on in his own higher education. And with respect to his education, he was extremely educated at the time um, for a person who, you know, lived during the time period that he lived. So um, he started high school late, but he graduated in two years, two years because yeah. gangster status mm-hmm. went on to earn a bachelor's and a master's from the University of Chicago. And then he became only the second black person after our good friend, W.E.B. Du Bois, du Bois, to earn a doctoral degree from Harvard in 1912. I repeat, 1912, mm-hmm. homeboy had multiple degrees as a black man in the yep. United States and went outside of the United States to live and work on behalf of the U.S. government, which is quite amazing. We're talking what, I don't know, terrible at math, but like 40-something years after slavery here, right? Um, Which is truly nutty. So a little bit about Black history and Carter G. Woodson. Like his good friend, role model Du Bois, Woodson felt that young Black Americans in the early 20th century weren't learning enough about their own heritage and ancestral achievements. It's really sad that that's still true in the early 21st century. Um, And in response to this, uh, Woodson continued to champion the teaching of Black history to Black people through various initiatives. So he formed the Negro History and Literature Week through his college fraternity, uh, Sci-Fi, uh, in 1924. I'm laughing because of some college memories surrounding black rats right now. Um, I will let my friends listening fill in uh, the gaps there. Um, Woodson also wanted the recognition to be broader, however. He wanted it to be wider reaching. So he enlisted his organization, the ASNLH, again, the organization that really led to what is now Black History Month to assist in this task. So in 1926, Woodson sent out a press release announcing the first Negro History Week ever. And this was in February of 1926. And just like a a brief reminder, um, February and the specific time period in February was chosen because of the birthdays of Abraham Lincoln and of Frederick Douglass, despite the fact we have no idea when Frederick Douglass was actually born because he was born as a slave and had no birth date um, to his knowledge. So that time period was chosen really um, intentionally. And the ASNLH formed branches all over the United States because there was high demand from colleges and universities for materials related to black history. They couldn't keep up with the demand. So they just kept growing. Uh, Woodson was a writer and he wrote over 24 books during his career. He continued to work in education throughout his career as a principal, as a professor and as a dean, most notably at Howard University, um, which is, you know, amazing. Shout out to the non PWIs. Shout out to the historically black colleges and universities uh, in the United let's States. Go. Yeah, let's go. Um, so by the 1960s, um, Many college campuses had started to recognize a full Black History Month. Not shockingly, it would be another 16 motherfucking years until the U.S. government recognized it. So in 1976, Gerald Ford officially recognized Black History Month. Ever since, every single U.S. president, including he who shall not be named, has recognized Black History Month and designated an annual theme. Which brings us to... 
So today we are exploring this year's theme, which again, I think we've previously kind of mentioned this, but it is again, the black family representation, identity and diversity. Yeah. So every year, for those of you who don't know, there's a different theme for Black History Month, and it kind of guides um, the activities and the press coverage and the this and the that with respect to Black History Month. Um, This year's theme I find particularly interesting as a Black woman who was also biracial, Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm sure Christina as well as a Black woman who is multiracial, right? Um, Representation, identity, and diversity. We have diverse-ass Black families, right? Like, So we both have half of our family that is Black, and yes. half that's something else. Yes. And we'll get into this a little bit later, but like finding an actual home, like there is no home. We're kind of all over the place. We adrift, y'all. <laughs> we just out here. States. We unmoored Countries. Ships. Continents. <laughs> like yeah. it is very, it's expand. It's expansive. Which leads, I think a lot of people, like I know black people who don't identify as bi or multiracial do this as well. But for both of us, this has led us down like the ancestry DNA path. And we're yes. going to touch on that later. We've, we've had some interesting conversations mm-hmm. um, about this. We've shared our like little ancestry maps. Um, mm-hmm. Some of our really close friends have done so as well. And so right. I think for people of color who have a mixed race background, it's particularly interesting to find these results. Cause like we just like, you know, have been told varying stories and like have never really felt like we had a home base. Um, Um, even though we identify very strongly with blackness and, you know, one of my friends actually put like, put a fine point on this and I love it last week. She's also biracial. She said, I'm a black woman with a white mom. (laughs) And that's like very much how I feel also, but because people outwardly identify us as, you know, like something other than black a lot of times, but like not white, not, you know, and it varies per like person. So yeah. we're constantly just getting... Finding like, a home base is like a thing. It's that, a thing. You know, um, and finding space within blackness has mm-hmm. always been a thing, right? Yeah. Like trying to represent the culture appropriately and pay homage to it, but also like having space for ourselves right. has always been a thing. So some initial hot takes before um, I pass it off to Christina and she really dives into like what the black family representation part of this is um, for Black History Month and, you know, some more um, pop culture and social media and media focused pieces. I just want to talk a second (laughs) about... Let's do some news recaps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Let's do some, let's do some um, cultural events. Uh, The vaccine. So... Um, let me just start by saying, like, fuck this racist this country, <laughs> but also, like, this is playing out, like, what we were talking about last week and the week before and what we will be talking about in literally every episode of this podcast is playing out in vaccine distribution. So I'm not going to, like, name this person, but, like, my partner, mm-hmm. um, I will say, works in the healthcare field and has been delivering vaccines. And I asked him, I said, you know, this is in the past couple of weeks, I said, we had Christina was here. She heard this conversation today. I said, how many black people were there in the Bay Area where you were delivering vaccines um, who you personally delivered vaccines to this week? And he said zero. <laughs> and mind you, mm-hmm. um, the place where he's delivering vaccines is a black community, a historically black community. It's definitely gentrifying. And, you know, there's a small sample size. He's probably delivered under 200 vaccines at this point. Um, but, you know, stories from the same area. I have a friend from college, well, from law school, who went um, to get her vaccine. She said out of the thousand people, she counted four black people. Mm-hmm. Um, these stories are coming to us from New York, um, from Brooklyn, from the Bronx. They're coming to us from L.A., from, you know, Compton, where I luckily was just able to sign up for a vaccine uh, because I'm an educator. These stories are replicated all over the place of black neighborhoods serving as the epicenters of vaccination. I don't know, for looks, 
Yeah. I, I don't know why. Yeah. And no black people, no brown people being vaccinated. Or very few, I should say. Not no. I mean, are we actually surprised? Uh, no, 0%. Not, I'm not surprised. Not surprised. I'm disgusted. Right. Completely disgusted. I es- mean... Especially when we look at the numbers of... The the number of black people, brown people, um, you know, BIPOC people broadly um, and Asian people. I know there's like some debate over whether Asian people are considered in BIPOC. I think they are. Whatever. Mm-hmm. We can fight that fight on another day. But the number of people of color, I should say, who have been negatively impacted, disparately impacted by COVID, who work on the front lines, who are from socioeconomic backgrounds. So they have these intersectional identities as of color and poor who are not being vaccinated. It is shocking. And like yeah. having signed up for a vaccine today and like the, the categories being like, you know, education and childcare. Why isn't one of the categories BIPOC? Like we know that people in those categories are dying at considerably yeah. higher rates. Yeah. I mean, it's also probably, you know, access to technology like language know, ability language, right? being able to actually sign up yeah like it, it's it was difficult for you to sign up yeah, so it, it took imagine, me hours yeah imagine somebody that doesn't have the resources to actually sign up or, or the like, language the skills language to actually, or the time because exactly. they're working all day yes so that driving is, that bus that or doing that thing that makes a them a frontline direct worker. results exactly yeah so again i will say fuck this country um, also like don't kick me out but <laughs> like <laughs> you trash yep shit is very real. shit's real and shit is very trash yes so that part um yeah so i'm gonna pass it to <laughs> pristina on that really uh light note. bright note <laughs> yeah so pristina what about this year's 2021 Black History Month theme, the Black family representation, identity, and diversity. Yeah, let's get into it. Let's get it. All right. So this theme was actually chosen by the Association for the Study of African American Life and History, which was Carter's. Yeah. Carter G. Woodson's organization and changed names. It went from the ASNLH to the ASALH because they decided they were going to put the most letters possible in the acronym. So it's the same foundation. They just switched the names. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit more politically correct. Yeah. Um, I I kind of, I'm for like a re-owning of the word Negro. Negro. Like I'm here for it. And like, I know there are other black people that feel like this. Like we call one another Negro. Like like, it's like a community, like, you know, term of endearment. But yeah, we'll we'll talk about it. But the fact that that foundation is still going and is still very present in our community. Yeah, since, what did we say? 1915, 1915, right? Yeah. So we are 106 (laughs) years. Yes. Uh, So anyway, so the black family. So this has been a topic of a study in many disciplines, whether it's history, literature, entertainment, visual arts, film, anthropology, policy, everything. So it's particularly significant these days um, within, you know, black television film. So we will kind of do a deeper dive into that a Mm -hmm. little bit later. But um, let's just kind of explore the black family. Yeah. And I'm like air quoting right now because like the black family is like this. Like, it's a thing. It's like, a thing. It's a constructed thing. It's a defeated thing. It's a thing. That yeah. We- and the fact and it's just to see the journey like in our society, especially American culture, just to see it like visually progress over the years. Yeah. Is it, it's very interesting. And I'm a, am I allowed to say how old you are, Christina, and how old I am? Is that okay? Can I say that sure. to your viewers? Okay. Yeah. So, Pristina, well, I just turned 35. Pristina's 37. Mm-hmm. I did have a dream last night where Pristina was 57 years old, <laughs> <laughs> but, but looked exactly the same. We'll talk about that some other time. But the reason I bring that up is because I think from when we were children, right? Like, yeah. I was born in 86. Were you born in what? 84? 83. 83. Yeah. Okay. 
so like the movement in um since we were born mm-hmm. even right um to now in how black families and black people have been represented like yeah i will say before we dive into like this deep dark like everything sucks and it's bullshit um part of like how media represents black people there has been a lot of change it's, it's right been getting better like we see yeah. more positive representations and more black ownership yes. over the representations of blackness and the black family now you know in 2021 than we did in the 1980s 1990s yeah. when we were like coming of age but it's still trash and not it's enough. still trash i mean you can just count the number of actual like production houses or directors or producers that are actually black and even like podcasts right like yeah. even like black podcasts right so there's like a lot of black history podcasts and things like that now and like the number that are run exclusively by black, black people, people with their own production companies are few and far between it's very minimal yeah it's like npr and like love npr but like it's not like black people who are right. like running the, these things yeah so. I'm yeah, not yeah. Now. <laughs> no, you're good. <laughs> Alrighty, so exploring the black family. All right, so let's just start with the black woman, right? So for black women, family has been systemically denied throughout history in, in very various ways. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the diaspora. Yeah. Um, so I said it was going to be quiet, but that was a lie. Um, <laughs> so you know, a few things here. One, the diaspora, and I'm going to break down just like a brief definition of that in a second, but like, I want to just mark that there is a direct through line here from slavery to mass incarceration, which we're going to get into in a second, mm-hmm. um, to the present moment, right? So what is the diaspora? Because we're going to like drop this term repeatedly. The African diaspora is normally um, defined as both the voluntary and involuntary movement um, of black people of Africans and their descendants uh, to all over the world, right? During the modern and pre-modern period. So this includes um, both forcible um, migration, AKA slavery um, and, you know, uh, non-forcible migrations of choice, right? So if you live in the United States, which most of you probably do, um, you know that there's a mixture of black people here. There are people who are newer immigrants who come from maybe the Caribbean islands, who come from Africa in more recent times, but the vast majority of black people in the United States still are descendants of slaves. Um, So the diaspora really refers to that. And this also is a term that has been co-opted, and I don't mean that in a negative way, um, by other groups of color. So other um, BIPOC um, representatives, shall we say, um, talk about the diaspora broadly as like brown peoples who have come here, um, both forcibly and not forcibly. So just wanted to give a little bit of a, of a definition um, yeah. of that. All right. Yeah. So let's talk about slavery. Piggybacking <laughs> off of that. Yeah. What do you, what do you <laughs> a sleep, little bit of slavery. slavery. What slavery? You know. There were slaves here? You know, <laughs> Wait, what what are you talking about? Just Christina? a little bit, you know, you know, just families being forcibly separated. Yeah. Oh, you know, oh, that was a thing. That was actually they did a that? thing. Why did they do that? That was actually a thing. Oftentimes as a punishment for escape. Yeah. And yeah. Persons whose behavior was deemed less than desirable. Yeah. So like uh, slaveholders, slaveholding families would um, separate enslaved families mm-hmm. uh, as punishment. Um, and just like, oh, like you didn't chop the greens the way I wanted you to for the fifth day in a row. So guess what? I'm selling your son. Right. Um, literally like I'm, I'm, I'm saying that like flippantly, but like that's a actual thing that happened quite frequently. And it was, um, something that was hung over the heads of slaves. Like they always knew if they had family members, they could be separated from them, you know, for a variety of reasons. Yeah. And also historically black women and black mothers have watched and just reared white children. Yeah. <laughs> while their own families are just being ripped apart in front of them. 
let's not forget the history and we'll get into a little bit more of that later. Mm -hmm. Um, But just like some touch point notes here before um, I toss it back to Pristina, like a little bit more of like why this was so trash and like what that history is. Right. Because we're talking about the ripping apart of black families. We're talking about like how black dignity was um, defeated, how it was taken. So we already talked about slavery. Let's talk about Reconstruction, the time period from 1865 to 1877, that 12 years after slavery where things were relatively good, comparatively at least, for black people. They were joining government, et cetera, et cetera. Black codes were introduced during that time period. So right after slavery, these these laws that had differential treatment, differential punishment for black and white people for the same crimes, right? It literally criminalized blackness. Um, that was defeated relatively quickly. It was it was deemed unconstitutional, and it was replaced by the Redemption Redeemer governments in the South um, and the Ku Klux Klan and Jim Crow. So this this period of racial segregation in law and in fact de facto and de jure, um, and then mass incarceration, right? So. So there's this through line. There's this stream of racist consciousness from the original sin of enslavement to the present day and through mass incarceration. And all of this has served as like a huge um, tool, a huge weapon for American society to wield against blackness and specifically black families. Yeah, and this all really here. started with the 13th Amendment. <laughs> which we talked about in depth. So yes. like if you want like a deep dive on the 13th <laughs> Amendment, go back to last week's episode. Mm-hmm. We talked about it quite a bit. Yes. Yeah. Um, so what else? So other ways that, you know, the, the family has been systemically denied throughout history. Mm-hmm. Also policing, surveillance. Which started in slavery. Right. Slave patrols led to some, not all, but some modern day police forces. Well, a lot of them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the history of the police department, like, we're meant to, like, round up the black people. <laughs> to round up and to watch, right? <laughs> to like, watch. when we're talking about surveillance, we're talking about, like, literally watching. Like, what are they doing? What are they up to, right? And, like, you have to remember, like, that original point in time in the early 1600s, mid 1600s, um, where black and white people were given differential treatment and black people slaves for life, white indentured servants, oh, hey, like, you can get your freedom. Um, the white people who left indentured servitude then oftentimes became overseers on plantations. Mm-hmm. Um, they became the people who were slave catchers. They became, you know, these things that were meant to enforce the law against black people, enforce blackness against black people, essentially. And that carries on to like through to this day. Like there's through lines in that. That was value given to white people in their whiteness, in their white skin. Um, You're always going to be better than even if socioeconomically you're the same as even if you started at the same point, indentured servant, slave, you get better because of your whiteness. Right. Right. And why do we think that all these killings are happening? Yeah. It's rooted in this issue. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, just to, you know, put a, a point on that specifically, and, you know, the U.S. government has always been watching is also the thing, right? So, like, um, there have always been agents of the government, not to sound like too much of a conspiracy theorist, but, like, this is true, watching black people to make sure they weren't, um, you know, gaining too much, that they weren't talking too much about the U.S. government. And so, you know, overseers on plantations, et cetera, right up through the FBI during the civil rights period, they were tapping MLK's phones. They were yeah. tapping, you know, people who are Black Panthers phone lines, right? COINTELEPRO, like the, the FBI was listening in. And this is another historical through line. Um, the police state is real when it comes to black people. And the federal government was always listening and making sure that black people weren't saying the wrong thing, weren't posing too much of a threat, weren't gaining too much power. Yeah. And that was a disruption, it's, right? <laughs> like yeah. That and disrupted it, the ability of black families to be black families. Right. Right, right, right. And still now, and it, it, it's progressed a little bit, but still, it's one of those things where, okay, we can actually kind of con- convict these perpetrators, but then they're always released or acquitted. <laughs> yeah, well, or, or just like excused entirely. Yeah. 
Um, I mean, the FBI never like really suffered consequences for surveilling black civil rights leaders for surveilling the black Panther party. Um, why would they? And you know, if you don't suffer consequences for the things you're doing, why would you stop doing right. it ever? So still to this day, I mean, you know, if you connect the dots between that sort of behavior, between white overseers on plantations, et cetera, through the FBI period of surveillance of its own citizens. And um, policing which, now. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, so let's talk a little bit about mass incarceration. Yes. And kind of the yeah. beginnings of mass incarceration, because that was the, the, the logical next step yeah. for a U.S. government that is trying to deny the ability to live to black people, but particularly black black men. So when did when did all that start? The official date is 1975. Yeah. However, this really started with the war on drugs. Yeah. Kind of, maybe. Kind of. <laughs> yeah. Kind There's of. some debate about it. There is debate. And, you know, I've worked with a lot of uh, weed brands. So, oh, yeah. Huh. Yeah. But it, which, like, talk about mass incarceration yeah. for shit that's now legal. Exactly. And it's really affected only, I'm not going to say only, but the majority has only really affected People of color. Yeah. Black people. Black people, like, Latino, Hispanic people. Yes. Yeah. They, and indigenous tribes, which most people don't know, but like a lot of them are now growing weed to, to sell on the market and it's affected them yeah. as well. So you have, you have these individuals in jail and have been in jail for years over petty weed like a Small third crimes. strike in California for yeah. like having like a dime bag or like some dumb shit. It's like, I literally would be high for 20 minutes. Thank you for putting me in jail for 10 years. Yeah. So this really started with Nixon, right? Yeah. Nixon. Um, okay. In all of his grandeur, like we aren't going to talk about Nixon, but he popularized the term war on drugs in a speech that he gave in 1971. And it's fascinating because even though 1975, like if you look at the statistics and you look at kind of um, the charts showing the increase in incarceration based on race, it looks like 1974, 1975 is really when it starts to like tick up. Yeah. Um, But it's been just kind of it's been going and going and going for all of these years, even like Clinton. You can, and yeah, <laughs> you can't ignore yeah. the underpinnings of it. And also, I mean, what's interesting is marking the war on drugs as the beginning of mass incarceration also ignores the, the foundations of it, which yeah. go hundreds of years prior. It also ignores the fact that there was actually an uptick, though not like drastic, prior to the war on drugs. So, the the idea that like the war on drugs was the reason this started happening. No, the war on drugs was an excuse for this happening. Yeah. Um, it wasn't the reason that we started arresting black all, people. We started arresting black people because we're a racist ass country that yes. doesn't want black people to be a part of our society. And it's still rooted back into like to slavery. Yeah. <laughs> back to slavery. Back to slavery. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So give us some facts on mass incarceration, Christina. Give us some numbers. Give us some data. Give us some stats. Give us the things. Are we ready? We're ready. I mean, I'm ready. I don't know if they're ready. All right. So black Americans are still incarcerated in state and federal prisons at five times the rate of white Americans. Five, five times. times. That's five. nuts. That is crazy. And I will mark here, this is to say literally nothing. This will be a whole nother episode. This might be a whole season. Christina's not going to like it, but it might be. Indigenous Americans, other Americans of color are also incarcerated at rates that like drastically outweigh or disproportionate to the representation in society. But like Indigenous Americans specifically, because a lot of their cases go straight to the federal system. I think are, they're the... I think they're the second largest. It's yeah. black. It's Which is crazy. Indigenous. It's, 
it's wild. Pacific, wild. It's Sorry, no, Pacific Islander, it. and then it's Latinx. Yeah. So, and the reason it's wild that indigenous um, Americans are the second most is black Americans represent 13 point something ish. Well, there's estimates 12 to 13 mm-hmm. point something ish percent of, of our population. Indigenous Americans, 1.2% like, of right. our population. And the fact that they were the second, the second like, like get crazy. out. Are you, what? Like, that is absolutely crazy. You just tell me they're wild criminals out here? Like, no. Lies. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. Continue. So, 1.1 okay. 1. 1 of all black Americans are incarcer- incarcerated. 1.1%. 1. 1.1. 1. 1. 1 compared yeah. to 0.02% of white Americans. Well, we're going to give you a second to... <laughs> so, we're saying, like, visually, if you can imagine this, 1 dot <laughs> 1 zero dot zero two, two. compare yes. those numbers it's a lot <laughs> that's insane that's insane yes okay next fact next so 1.4 million americans who are disproportionately black are still incarcerated in state and federal prisons 1.4 million million so this means that the prison population is still five times larger than it was in 1975 before the war on drugs so it was basically a setup. It was a setup. To incarcerate black people. And I want to say here too, um, hopefully I say this accurately, but the United States has the largest prison population in the world. So like, mm-hmm. let's go global for a second here. Like, let's like pull the, um, the, the lens back. Let's zoom out. We have, or we account for somewhere between like 120th and 125th of the world's total population as far as like how many people live here, right? Like 300, I don't know, 50 million people maybe live in the United States. We have one quarter to one fifth of the world's total prison population yeah. in the United States, which is nutty. Like one in four to one in five of the people on the planet who are incarcerated live in the United States, despite the fact that we have only, I don't know, like one twentieth ish of the total population in the world. And we even outnumber China and Russia who are known for like throwing everyone in jail like pussy riot like you want to scream about like vaginas you're going to jail we're worse than them so just think about that for a second also private prisons oh yeah you have like this is like a business now what does that mean christina like what private prisons like why does that matter like as compared to what yeah i mean yeah government-run prisons but also now it's like you're bringing in so prisoners are also work they're also used for cheap labor yeah, and so, yes, and have been for a long time. Like, chain gangs, like, yes. this is a whole other episode, but, like, yeah. we're not even talking about, like, the labor that has been extracted from black and brown bodies through yeah. the prison system historically. Yes. But... So, basically, private prisons are exploiting this work, and they need to keep a quota for prisoners so that they can keep up the demand for cheap labor. Absolutely. <laughs> and like so, cheap labor is a huge part of it, like, and that's <laughs> massive. And we're going to talk about, like, Angola, which is, like, the super, um, I don't want to say famous, it's a super notorious prison um, in the South, in Louisiana. Um, and we're going to talk about why it's called Angola in a couple minutes. But cheap labor, people, um, you know, picking cotton, like they still are in Angola in 2021. Um, and they were prior to Angola being a prison when it was a plantation way back when. But also, Prisons are a for-profit institution yeah. in a lot of cases because think about all of the prisoners in there, thousands of people, and all of the things they need. They need their uniforms, their soap, the slippers that they wear, their pillows, their bed sheets. They need all yeah. the things. They need the stuff that you buy in commissary, right? So like packaged goods, cup of noodles, Cheetos, like all of these things, right? All of that is making someone money. Yeah. They have contracts. 
with and, big time companies. And just to give you an idea of how pernicious and nefarious this is, like these are the same contractors oftentimes that are running things like, I don't know, Blackwater in Iraq, like who are running our um, war complex as well. So not just like the prison industrial complex, but like the war industrial complex. Right. Um, this is all connected. And, you know, I, I just think it, it, it makes sense to take a brief pause and just recognize like we are making money off of our prison system. Yeah, it's a business which incentivizes like, them staying open and putting more people in them right because you need to make more bed sheets and more slippers yes. and sell more food from commissary and more cigarettes and more whatever someone's making more money so you're going to enslave yes i'm going to say slave preach so you can run these businesses so you can still run your cheap labor processes like it is it's crazy and we dropped this stat last week but when chain gangs became a thing, right? So like after slavery ended officially and the black codes rolled out and all the shit started happening and black people were starting to be disproportionately incarcerated so they could be controlled by another mechanism other than slavery, people died at higher numbers as prisoners than they did as slaves, right? So like in the turpentine swamps of Florida, right? In the cotton fields of the South, doing all of the things that they had done as slaves, they were dying as prisoners at higher numbers because of the conditions that they were being forced to live under. And now the government had a legitimate justification for incarcerating or enslaving them. They had broken a rule or a law or done something to land their ass there, even though they really hadn't. It was a crime to be black, right? So like, it's really important to look at that as well. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So just a few more other... Give us the stats. Give us the stats. So it will be 2044 before we return to the pre-mass incarceration prison numbers if current prison reforms continue, which was 1975. What year is it even now, COVID brain? <laughs> That's 23 years from now. Like, that is crazy. And like there, some of the reforms that have happened, like, you know, I just had some guests um, that I was interviewing for my diversity consultancy who all work in and around the carcerative state or on prisons. And they were talking about, you know, there are some reforms happening. Bail reform, right? So like cash bail is being, you know, whittled back or like eliminated in some cases in certain states. But it's not like they're push like they're not pushing for these reforms. No, like it's, 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 it's super it's, slow. They're fighting tooth and nail. They're, exactly. Like it's not reforms. like they want this to happen. California, the three strikes law um, has been impacted. I mean, it's been defeated, but like it's also been impacted negatively by COVID right so like it's harder to throw someone in prison for like a third strike where like they have a joint in their pocket right right? um so there are things that are happening that are decreasing the prison population but that's not impacting the number of black people or brown people are being not at all it's just the overall number is being impacted right also it'll be 2088 when state prison populations return to pre-mass incarceration levels so 68 years from now i can't even do that math but that means we'll both be over 100 (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah that's fucking nuts are you kidding me cool 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 and again that is only if the progress and i say progress in air quotes that we are currently experiencing continues so like if we start to backtrack again because let's you know let's mark this we have a new administration you know joe biden's vice or joe biden's vice president joe biden's president (laughs) i'm not gonna lie i wish he was vice president (laughs) joe biden's president kamala harris is vice president um but you know, let's not play like they haven't both played their role in mass incarceration, right? Yeah. Kamala Harris is a prosecutor. Joe Biden's been crafting all sorts of laws in conjunction with all sorts of people to incarcerate people. And so, like, that's assuming that we don't backtrack yeah. these numbers, 2088 and 2044 being yeah. the, the the marks in time where we reach pre-mass incarceration 1975 numbers. Yeah. So that's, like, a big if. It's, it's a slow process. Even yeah. Kamala didn't doesn't have a great track record. 
we're not even gonna go there I'm, fine, I'm we a, love her we we love her we also hate her we stand her we whatever don't stand her like black and asian power i get it yeah i get it and but you know like, what let me actually take a brief second here to just say i i posted something last night about this it's really a shitty situation to be in as a person of color and particularly a black woman where you are so underrepresented in our government that you have to stand the first black vp um because she looks like you but you don't agree with so much of what she stands for, right? Like we wouldn't be in this position where we had to be such big fans, AKA Stan for all my old people out there um, (laughs) of Kamala Harris. If we had other people who had looked like us historically in government, right? Like, so like stop putting us in this position and like, let there be more of us representing us. Right. Anyways, continue. Give us more stats, drop more stats, drop more facts. Give us the data. All right, and it will be twenty one ninety nine. We didn't really talk about permit, like prisons, uh, women prisons. But. Okay, but go ahead. So it will be twenty one ninety nine when women's prison population returns to pre mass incarceration levels. So about one hundred and eighty years from now. <laughs> <laughs> 180. So, and here's, pause again. Jesus. So, I'm going to mark how under-focused upon black women are. Yeah. Black women. Remember it, Breonna Taylor, who yeah. in the most egregious of police state deaths in the past two years, was completely invisibilized? She was killed before George Floyd, before Rayshard Brooks, before all of these other people all of their deaths were horrendous. All of their deaths were wrong. But her death was so invisibilized because she's not only black, but she's a woman. woman. Let's talk about fucking intersectionality. And let's talk about how black women are shat upon by this system and this country and pop yes. culture. Let's be real. Like across the board. We don't exist prisons, to this country. Everything. Healthcare system. Everything. All of it. We are hyper visible and yes. invisible at the same time. So like 179 years from now, we will return to pre mass incarceration levels for women in prisons. If we continue with our current decarceration, bail reform, whatever, mm-hmm. 68 years from now for um, the 28, 2088 number with respect to state prisons, right? That's a massive fucking difference. Yes. That is almost threefold. Yeah. Like, that's nutty. And I can't. Like, I, I, I just have to mark the, the, the female intersectional piece of that. More stats. Give us more stats. Because it's never talked about. It's almost forgotten. Yeah. Which is, Jesus. It's nutty. We're not here. We don't exist. It's except nice. for, like, the problem that everything stems from. According and being to, loud and we're obnoxious. We're all welfare queens. <laughs> so, yeah. Anyways. Go ahead, okay. Go ahead with your bad stuff. Let's, um, let's move on. Okay. Let's move on. To what? Let's move on to black motherhood and fatherhood. Mm-hmm. Okay. So because of all of these things we have just discussed, kidnapping, enslavement, slavery, black coats, Jim Crow, mass incarceration, having a family hasn't been the norm. <laughs> I mean, how could it be? <laughs> that is a lot of shit. I, so, can we mark that again? Kidnapping, enslavement, black codes, Jim Crow, mass incarceration. Having your entire family just torn apart, having your partner, having your kid just taken from you. Mm-hmm. And, and again, yes, here, can you please raise my child? Thank you. <laughs> and do it with a smile on your face. Smile. <laughs> do a jig for me while you're at it. CEG, birth of a nation. Do, do a jig, yes. Yeah. All right, so. And also cook me some food. <laughs> like, I. It's just. Oh, yeah. Anyways, anyways, anyways. Okay. Anyways. So, with this being said, it was a luxury. 
you having know, a family, right? having a family, just having a family was a luxury, which is like something that we so take for granted, right? Yes. Like, you know, you were fed all these pop culture representations of what family is. And like, mm-hmm. it's something we take for granted in the United States. And like, it is something that so many people do not have in this country because of the history of this country. And we are hyper focusing because it's black history month, because of, you know, the storyline that we're on right now on blackness in the family. But like, this is true for BIPOC people Generally, we will get into not this episode, but hopefully next season or the season after a deep dive into indigenous culture and history. But like there have been systemic oppressions of of the indigenous family, of families of all colors that are not white in this country. Um, There has been this this intentional ripping apart of the fabric Mm. of the family. Yeah. And, you know, it's there's a reason that we're at different places. There's a reason that we have different socioeconomic and educational, um, you know, attainments. It hasn't been a level playing field, which everybody likes to think it is and has been all these years, but it has not. Yeah, because that makes it easier, right? To think like it's a meritocracy and like everything's fair and you like got, like you earned what you have. You earned. So all of this has a huge, huge effect on black families today. How? Let's talk about black motherhood and the family unit. So... Because of all of this just great stuff that... (laughs) I love it here. (laughs) Lovely roses all around. Mm -hmm. There is a disproportionate amount of single mother-led black families in the U.S. today, which is not surprising. Yeah. I mean, zero, like, given everything we just walked through. There's a reason. There's a rhyme and reason, folks. Like, come on. Mm -hmm. All right. So according to the most recent U.S. census, 74... 0.3% of all white children under the age of 18 live with both parents, while only 38% or a little bit over 38.7% of black minors can say the same, which means that a third or 33% of all black children in the U.S. under the age of 18 live with unmarried mothers compared to 6.5% of white children. Which also, like, totally fine to not be married. We are not yeah. pushing any, you We're know. We're not married. Yeah. <laughs> probably never will be. Um, <laughs> probably never will. I have cats. So that's enough. Um, but, yeah, I mean, that's, you know, not saying anything about, like, whether marriage is desirable or, like, the way that things should be. But, like, of people married, like, these are the statistics. Like, that's yes. nutty. Under the typical American social contract of the typical American family. Yes. And she's air quoting typical, but it's also like desirable based on what media tells us we should want and what is normal. Get married, be straight, like do all the things. According to all the white people. Again, I hate it here. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, anyways, anyways. Okay. All right. So let's talk about black fatherhood now. Yes, please. Okay, so black men have received little recognition for their perseverance or successes as fathers. Despite history and all of the social stereotypes pushed forward about them. Yes. What are these? some of these stereotypes? Black men have historically been stereotyped as unreliable, lazy, hypersexual, promiscuous, immature, criminal, the list goes on. What does this sound like, Christina? What did we talk about last week about stereotypes about blackness and illness? Oh. Let's go back to Birth of a Nation. Yeah. So, (laughs) you know, last week we talked about Birth of a Nation and we talked about it as kind of the beginning of a lot of these stereotypes about blackness. And like maybe even if not the beginning, the instantiation, like the permanence of these stereotypes to to push forward into the present moment. Um, All of those things are how black people, black men specifically, were stereotyped. 
back um, then and still now. In 1915, like, and now it's, it's 2021, in it case is, you forgot, in case you have COVID brain. and It is still happening, folks. Yeah, so, like, black men have been stereotyped as all these things. And, you know, um, it's not to say the black fathers have failed. They haven't. They haven't. They have done exceptionally well considering the cards they've been dealt. Right. And it's, it's, and it's also like, okay, maybe some have, but so have other So have white men. fathers. Yes, exactly. So have fathers like, from every racial yes, group, right? Yes, exactly. The fact that the failures, and I'm air quoting, of black fathers have been hyper-focused upon as like the total experience of black fathers, the total, you know, ability of black fathers, what they have to give to the world is truly, truly wild. Not to say that black fathers have failed. There is no innate difference in the ability of black fathers to father to with respect other to other races exactly. and other fathers. There is a difference in history. Yes. History and also just representation of like what we actually see every day. And so, the present moment, right? Yes. Like history to now. Like we just talked about mass incarceration. Like black fathers have been ripped out of this country at a rate that is unmatched quite literally. Um you know, only seconded by the indigenous population, I think, is what statistics bear out. And that yeah. makes an impact on how the black family, family. operates and is structured. So yes. let's talk about, you know, why um, why does pop culture hyper-focus historically on negative representations of what it is to be a black man in the United States? Yeah, I mean, luckily, thankfully, it's progressed a little bit, right? Representation. However... I mean, representation, like, like what we see on the screen, not so much with, you know, who's actually behind these projects or who's behind, you know, who's actually doing the hiring, the producing, whatever. Mm -hmm. But we have progressed. To some extent. To to some certain extent. But we still see lots of examples of the common storyline of black criminality and black subpar fathering and black rage I'm mad, so whatever, represent me. And there's still some missteps. So let's give some examples of <laughs> TV who, like, honestly, I love some of these shows, but, like, when you really think about it, like, the things that are represented, like, we so frequently see negative representations mm-hmm. of blackness, and we very infrequently see positive representations of blackness. So yes. The Wire, mm-hmm. The Shy, mm-hmm. which, like, it's great, you should watch it. <laughs> when They See Us, which if even, you would like to cry and like, or throw up, nope. you should watch. Um, mm-hmm. The Hate You Give, Moonlight, which, oh my god, so touching, so moving. Mahershala, love you, boo. Um, but still dark and yeah. just, you know, so dark. Um, Raisin in the Sun, Do Bring the Right all Thing, the way back. Yeah. Soul Food, The Best Man, Tyler Perry movies, which well, there's like a lot of shit we can touch yeah. on there. <laughs> I mean, shout out to Tyler Perry. I mean, he's like, he like did a whole thing. I mean, I guess he created a space for us. He created a space for himself, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah i mean baby boy like there's just like there's so many movies oh god baby boy i mean mind you i like that movie but it's just and there's and to be fair even black people making black film black tv are are representing this this type of blackness not because they want to but it's because that's what's there that's what's been fed to us and that's what's been pushed forward by society and i also feel like they're kind of pigeonholed into kind of a category that they're allowed to kind of succeed in absolutely it's like what are people going to demand what do people want to see they want to see black criminals they want to see black single fathers they want to see black people in prison that's what they're used to that's what they want to see they don't want to see a black fucking classical you know music produce like the the green book was like problematic but also great um 
that was weird for a lot of people because it was a gay black man who was a classical musician. Like, right. that's a weird thing for, for, for white people. Right. Wait, what's the show that you watch that's on Netflix right now? Bridgerton. Bridgerton. I Bridgerton. Yet, I'm sorry. He's but... hot as hell. <laughs> <laughs> like, he's Shonda. You could have made the main family black, though. Right. I'm just saying. Like, and I know why you didn't, because you were worried about palatability. You were worried about it getting but picked still, up. But, like, you could have made, made, made the main family black. But, but, like the but I'll love her, interest. But, 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 but let me give Shonda like a little bit of credit here. The queen is black. That's a thing. The queen of the entire fucking country is black. So I will say that's a thing. Okay. And also homeboy's hot. So like Shonda, you do no wrong in my eyes. Whatever. Because I would have been out here acting a dumbass fool just like homegirl <laughs> over his fine ass. Fine, he's hot. Okay, next. Music. Let's move on to music. What about yes. music, Christina? This is actually my favorite part of what we're going to talk about today. What All right. It? So, I mean, I'm pretty sure that everybody knows, maybe not everybody knows, but, you know, hip hop has given black people a platform to creatively address all of these issues. This is how we express ourselves. This is how we, like, talk shit without actually talking shit. But actually talking but actually shit. Talking <laughs> <shit>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So yeah, like we made a platform for ourselves. We made a stage. We stood on it, and then white people proceeded to move us off of the stage and stand on it themselves. And I don't mean that in the sense of like white musicians. I mean that in the sense of like musical forms being yeah. taken. We can have a whole conversation on another day about yeah. you know cultural appropriation and whatever. But yeah. So. Let's talk. We listened to a song today. What did we listen to today? We did. And you all probably know this song, but have never probably listened to the lyrics. It's Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, The Message. This is 1982. This is before me. And me. This particular song, which is also sampled by... Famously. Diddy and Maze. Can't stop, won't stop. No, that's not even it. Can't nobody <laughs> No, but I'm, No, I'm just saying. Can't stop, won't stop. It's the like Diddy. Oh. What I think can't stop, won't stop. I think um, the young gunners can't stop, won't stop. Rock and roll, yeah, no, we, can't we stop, get down, stop. baby. We get down, girls and girls. They love us because we stay fresh to death. We're the best on us. Okay, that I'm was done. like the next generation of. <laughs> Does anybody want to sign me? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. So this is just another. This is this is an example of a hip hop artist, rap artist who was actually telling a shit you mm-hmm. know without us even knowing without even like i bet everybody knows the beat everybody knows the beat but it's you've never actually listened to the lyrics right so some of the lyrics a child is born with no state of mind blind to the ways of mankind god is smiling on you but he's frowning too because only god knows what you'll go through you'll grow in the ghetto living second rate and your eyes will sing a song of deep hate Jesus. Yikes, yikes, Masked yikes. by these dope beats. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Well, and it's not even a dope, like, I mean, it is a dope beat, but, like, it's also, like, kind of upbeat. Like, the yeah. song is, like, um, dope. It's got, like, a synth in it. Um, close to, to the edge. edge. Yeah. And, like, it's got, like, the synth, like, heavy synth in it. So, like, it's kind of yeah. upbeat, up-tempo even. But, like, what's the song about, Christina? So, this song is actually about a young black man who drops out of school, ends up in jail, and dies by suicide after being raped mul- multiple times. Which, what does this sound like? Um, this sounds like Khalif Browder 
um, who, you know, Cleve Browder, this is a famous story in the United States, but super famous in New York specifically because he was on Rikers. He was, he was held on Rikers Island. Um, in May, 2010, Cleve Browder, Mm -hmm. who at the time, I think he was 16, he and a friend were returning from a party, I think in the Bronx. Um, and they were confronted by cops, which is like all too common of an occurrence for black men, black people generally, but specifically black men like stop and frisk was massive in New York. Um, and you know, they were confronted by these cops who said, yo, like you stole something. Right. And this is the 16 year old, his friend who's around the same age. Um, and they said, nah, we, we didn't steal anything, prove it. And the cops at first, they were like, you stole something from these people tonight. Khalif Browder was like, search me. I don't have shit on me. I didn't steal anything from anyone. Like, the fuck out of here. And the cops then went to the cop car, supposedly, allegedly, and talked to the, I'm air quoting, victim of this crime. I'm air quoting because, like, this crime never happened. You will find out later. Um, And the victim of the crime was like, this happened two weeks ago. So the cops come back, new story. They're like, this happened weeks ago. So it doesn't really matter if you have anything on you. They book Khalif Browder and his friends. They take him um to holding and they are put on rikers island and they are confined there in a unit for adolescents khalif browder had prior run-ins with the law but like who really gives a fuck to be honest like so so many people and like so would so many people if the law targeted them if they do black and brown people yeah i think it's kind of funny what he had a run-in with the law for it was grand larceny um for allegedly taking a delivery truck for a joyride good for you (laughs) sounds fun um but He spent an exceptional amount of time in solitary confinement on Rikers. Um, One of his stints in solitary was 10 months in length, 10 months in a single cell by himself, staring at walls, um, you know, very, 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 very small Mm -hmm. unit. Um, And um, again, this kid was kid, 16 years old, 16. And we're not even going to go into the aging of of black people. And I mean that both literally and um, figuratively or symbolically, but like we age up black kids, right? We think of Emmett Till, um, who was treated like he was an adult for something he didn't even do. Um, at the age of 14, we treat black boys like they are men. And how many times has this happened when they don't do anything? Yeah. Yes. All the time. Because their bodies are viewed as criminal <laughs> because of their very existence and their audacity to be black, right? Um, so anyways, he spent all this time in solitary confinement, and this happened repeatedly, right? He was put in solitary repeatedly for getting into fights and for defending himself in some cases, um, doing things that any person would do if they were in jail and being, you know, targeted, confronted. And he tried to commit suicide on numerous occasions, starting in 2010 when he was 16, the same year that he was arrested. Um, and reportedly he was goaded, you know, he was, um, encouraged in his attempts to commit suicide by the correctional officers, by the guards in the prison who are supposed to protect him, who we are paying our fucking tax dollars mm-hmm. to employ. Um, when he was in prison, the 16 year old, he was being coerced essentially to, uh, kill himself. And so he attempted multiple times to commit suicide, both on Rikers Island where he was held. And then after he was released, um, at home and he finally succeeded. Um, he succeeded in June of 2015, several years after he left Rikers Island in 2013, um, where he served three years for a crime that he was never convicted of that the DA had to drop because they did not have enough evidence to, um, convict him of, which is imagine at 16 being in Rikers Rikers is one of the toughest Jails. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, a little bit on Rikers and like, there's going to be a whole nother episode dedicated to this, but Rikers Island, the man, and I didn't know this, my, my friend, um, my good friend, Julian, 
told me this, who works in the the criminal justice system. She was a public defender and now works in a nonprofit. Um, But Rikers Island, the namesake of Rikers Island, was a white judge who, um, you know, was a New York judge back in slave times. And he was super, super involved in sending slaves back to plantations when they had escaped or black people who might have been free uh, because he offered them very little due process under the Fugitive Slave Clause and the Fugitive Slave Act that was later passed um, to send slaves back to to enslavement, right? Wow, like, I did not know that. And there's a lot of history similar to this in other prisons um, and other carceral settings in the United States. So it's just the through lines, again, from the past to present day, people, organizations are actively fighting to close Rikers. Um, it has resulted in a decrease in a lot of um, confinement there. But, you know, this is disgusting. Yeah. And this is just all tying back to just in case we forgot full circle, full circle to our children, our partners being ripped away from us for no reason. And this is what happens. And I'd like to mark here too. Like we've talked a little bit, I think we brought this up the last episode, but like we've seen with COVID the decrease in life expectancy again for white people, one year for black people in the United States, 2.7 years. And part of that, yeah, sure. COVID frontline workers, we get treated like shit. We have minimal access to vaccines, et cetera. But it's also black men are being ripped out of our society at yeah. a very young age at 16 and dying, dying. And in places like New York, that gap in life expectancy, it's not 1.7 years. It's sometimes six to eight years. So take a second and chew on that. Chew on the fact that this country is so hell-bent on killing and criminalizing black men that there is almost a decade's worth of gap between the life expectancy of a young black man and a young white man in our most major cities. If that's not appalling to you, there's something wrong with you. Yeah. On that late note. On that note, as another example of an artist, present day, not saying that, you know, Grandmaster Flash. I mean, that was they will 19, never go. That was 1982. But they will right? never go away. But present ago. day, and there's so many other examples. But just because Coda has let us graciously lended his song uh, for Colored Boys, which is amazing. When Christina first played it to me, I was like, "We can use this for the podcast." I was like, "Fuck yes, <laughs> we will use this for the podcast." So check him out. So uh, Coda says, "Black boys still strong. Slavery's still here." Black boys still marked, the prison still packed. With innocent black boys, the black boys still thrive. The black girls still God. Yeah. And that's from For Colored Boys, mm-hmm. which is... we, we Listen pull, to the entire song. Listen to the whole song. We only pull, pull like a small portion of the beginning of it for our theme song, which we recently posted on our, our Instagram page. Follow us. Um, Follow but us. thank you, Koda, for A, being a dope artist, and B, letting us use your music, and C, speaking to our people. Yeah. Okay. Lastly here. Let's talk about our home base. What does that mean? Home base for black families. So do we have a home base? Well, us personally, (laughs) no. But (laughs) no, but the the point here is that we have been so just uh, is disenfranchised. Destroyed, decimated. We've been um, we have been pulled apart from our roots. We don't even right. know what our roots are, and that was intentional. And our our roots now are just all over the place. Yes, regions. Countries. Which has sent us continents. looking. Us personally, personally us as a group of people. Yeah. We've been all, all of us have been on these journeys, right? And for some of us trying to really 
figure out where we're actually from. So, yeah, we look to, you know, Ancestry and Nat Geo and 23andMe and all these different companies that do these things to see what, what is our ancestry. It matters to us because, like, we don't know so often. Our, our last names are oftentimes the name of slaveholders. Yeah. Um, like, my last name, Staten, is definitely a white slaveholding name that is either Irish or Scottish. Um, we're, on the black side, we're, like, 4% white because of some inner... Mixing it's called slavery, um, inner raping, I'm guessing, <laughs> uh, based on our history, but like, yeah, like we don't know that much about our families, um, so we look, we yes. have to look to see we where we came from and where we went, right? And like, where people we don't even know exist in our family lines yeah. might be. It's almost one of those things where it's since there's such a big question mark, you just have to know. I, I mean, per, me personally, I just needed to know, find out just because I, I can't live my life not knowing where. Where you came from? Where I came from? Like, and it's, don't you think part of that's just like we feel so unmoored? And I, I mean, I think part of this is being multi or biracial black women, but like also part of this is just being black. Is like who came before me? Like yeah. why am I like this? <laughs> like what did the people before me do with their lives? Like what are their stories? Right? Like yeah. I need to complete my own personal story, and I can't do that in the same way that white people in this country can. Right. And even like my white side of my family, like I know so much more about that side of the family. I visited where we're from because right. we know where we're from yeah i know where in sweden the white side of my family is from you know what i mean like yeah. we don't know that for black families because of the history of blackness in this country right so what are you christina so, but what are you really so are you offended no i'm not offended <laughs> okay so folks so i'm gonna say a few things today <laughs> Are we going there today? Yeah. Is today the day? I'm just going to say it. Yeah. Oh, I'm here for it. Christina, my hand is on her shoulder right now. I'm so Deja is actually probably the only one that actually knows this. I love you, Christina. So recently, my Obachan died like in October last year. Which is her grandma. That's my grandma on my dad's side. So Who's Japanese? Who's Japanese? Um, she was married to my grandpa, who was from Georgia. Who was Ho- black? Horace Alford. Horace. Who I share. Oh, that's name. a name. Horace. So Horace, he, he's from, he was from Georgia. That's where my family's from. Um, however, recently, um, my dad told me that that's actually not his father. Um, so my dad was born in Japan and his dad, which we don't know basically anything about, he was just I have no idea anything about him, but he was just this black guy. Um, we, I don't even want to say the last name because we don't really know. So She's actively investigating. I am actively investigating. Um, so I grew up, yeah, my lived family, um, they're from Georgia. My real family, I recently did my ancestry. Um, so my ancestry points back to... Cameroon, Congo, Nigeria, Mali, um, Benin, and Togo. Um, so many places. So many places. We're going to go to all those places. We're going to go to all those places, but also the early communities that where I'm from, according to Ancestry. And early communities means like the first places that black people, slaves, touched down, touched down. in the United States. Yes. So North Carolina, uh, Mississippi, and Alabama. However, which is weird because... I've looked at Daedra's ancestry map and there's actual crossover crossover from Africa to the United States. And I'm lacking. I don't have that on my map. It's, it's 
But part of that could just be the disruption in what you know about your ancestry, right? Yeah. There might not be enough information because so much of this is based on, from what I know at least, so much of this is based on reference communities or reference populations. And it's like, how many people do we have to compare your stuff to in X space, right? So like your family, because there's this disruption you don't really know. Yeah. Might just not have enough information. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So anyways, the journey continues. I am still researching and... I've found one family member that I'm... <laughs> yeah, this is this guy. That she... <laughs> it's like probably her cousin. Or her second cousin. cousin. I don't know, but cousin. we have very similar DNAs. Um, so we're... The journey is... I'm still trying to figure this out. She's out here doing the thing. I'm out here doing the thing. Um, and just for like comparison, so you're, you're from... Based on your ancestry, Cameroon, Congo, Nigeria, Mali, Benin, and Togo... Um, I on the black side, mm-hmm. and I'm going to give you some percentages cause I actually have my ancestry print out here right now. <laughs> I'm cause I'm a nerd, uh, Nigerian 24%, which I've been telling my dad for years, <laughs> um, Cameroon, Congo and Western Bantu peoples, 14% Mali also. Yay. What up sister? That's uh, so. 7% Benin and Togo, 2% and then Southern African Bantu people, which like I take great pride in this, um, 1%, small percentage, but those are the... We have some overlapping. Yeah, those are the OGs. The Southern Bantu people um, are one of the oldest groups of ancestral DNA on the planet, and I'm here for it. I got an old soul, my friends. So yeah, I mean, we. I've gotten into it with my brother about this, actually. He's like, why do you care? Like, I care because, like, don't you want to know what the fuck you are when this country has tried to, like, deprive us of that for so long? Um, and as far as early communities are concerned for me, North Carolina um, is, is big for me. So Virginia, North Carolina, my whole family, both of my grandfather and my grandmother's side, uh, paternally, so my dad's parents, um, northern North Carolina, southern Virginia, um, Apparently, there's there's some history of there being a free slave colony that was well-armed in northern North Carolina that my grandmother's family's from. And she apparently was a really good shot and known for shooting things with her shotgun very accurately. Mm. Um, so that kind of makes sense. So we both share North Carolina. Yeah. I mean, fascinating. We will definitely spend a lot more time digging into this and share the story with you to the extent that Christina is comfortable moving forward. <laughs> and thank you for sharing that. That was big. Yeah, that's a lot. It was a lot. It was big. But Nobody I mean, knows but, that. But now everybody knows that. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> yeah, it's like, take that and take a sip. Um, I just did. So <laughs> while you're thinking about that, I'm going to close this out here. So just, you know, to bring things full circle, while the role of the black family has, you know, been described by some as the foundation of, of the entire race. Mm-hmm. It is the foundation. The black family, just because say we it. come say the from. Thing, say the thing. We come from such a rich history and just so many backgrounds, so many stories, so many groups of people that just kind of make us who we are. And it's, you know, some of us were slaves. Some of us came straight from, you know. And we have a lot of friends who, like, their families weren't slaves. Like, we have several very close friends whose families are first-gen immigrants immigrants from Eastern Africa, from the Caribbean, who, like, their families would probably have some slave history there in the Caribbean, but, like, not in the the United States. There are so many different stories and backgrounds that just kind of make us who we are. And isn't that kind of the tragedy of the U.S. experience with blackness is that because of the fact that we were brought here in shackles, we weren't allowed to really inhabit our full story, right? Yeah. Like European immigrants to the United States who came here by choice um, 
and whose whose paths weren't erased, they've been able to tell their full story because they know it, right? But like, if yeah. you're from where we're from, if you have the backgrounds where we're from, and you have to dig for it, we don't we know. Like, we don't know who was an artisan, who was a this, who was a that, who was a preacher, who was an educator. We don't know. No idea. We've been deprived of that history of the the full breadth of the history of our people. Yeah, and a lot of times, like we don't even have records. No, <laughs> slaves were, were given slaves. numbers. Slaves were given numbers, not names. So, like, quite literally. If you records. look on the census in the 1800s, <laughs> when slaves started to be counted, um, slaves were given numbers, not names. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah I, I think we all kind of share. Just like God, where? Who am I? Where am I from? Who are my ancestors? We're getting there, though. We're figuring it out. We're, we're, we're getting there. We're trying. We're, we're getting trying. there. And, I mean, all this to say also, the black family, you know, the subject of this year's Black History Month, it's complicated. Um, you know, we have so many intersecting identities, ancestors, slaves, free, not free, patriarchal versus matriarchal, right? Um, different family structures, single versus dual-headed households, extended families, black, bi, inter, multiracial, right? It's just... It's all of it. And Christina wrote this. This is like the best closing line, but the black family is a rich journey of present and past experiences that make us who we are. And we need to hold that. We need to hold space for that. We need to know that. And we need to embrace that. We are not the story we've been told that we are. Yes. We're so much more than that. And I'm about to cry now. So we're going to go. Oh, this is a good one. I'm actually crying. <laughs> we are more than what people have told us that we are. Yes. So, so don't let them tell you anything else. Don't let them lie to you. So with that, our friends, we leave you. We leave Black History Month, but we are Happy here for Black, Black History, History Month. Year because so this is what we do. There's so much more. And yeah, there's and so much more coming. Yeah. So um, stay tuned. We're going to take a brief hiatus and we're going to plan. We're going to plan. We're going to do the thing. We have other things coming up. Yeah. But um, we will be back very soon. And we hope that you and many more will join us. And we thank you. And for thank you for tuning in and yeah. like kicking off with us. We really appreciate it. Cheers. Drink safely. Only drink if you're 21 plus. <laughs> please. And mm -hmm. yeah, that's it. That's it. Bye bye. Thanks. Bye. Until next week. Keep your glasses full and remember that racism is garbage. Trash. <laughs> Basura. None of this would be possible without the support of our talented team. Big ups to our producers, Lana Shea and Kate Bataille. Thank you so much. And shout out to Coda the Friend for allowing us to use his music. Woop woop. Woop. Bye bye.